introducing Mr. Kawada himself, my dad. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you're listening, however you're listening, this is Quantum of History. I am your host, Donnie Waldron. Welcome into episode 48. This is going to be about the Union Course, uh, an interesting topic prevalent in On Her Majesty's Secret Service, also in one of the Raymond Benson continuation novels, Bond and the Union Course and Draco Do Battle. Uh, this was one of those topics where and you, the guest today is Thomas Felix Creighton from All Beyond Never Dies, Fleming Never Dies. He's been on this podcast a lot, so I'm sure you guys are very well aware of Thomas. And I got to tell you, when I started this episode or I started writing this episode, I didn't know where it was going to go. I had an idea before I went in there how we were going to approach the guest and how we were going to approach that. And then as I researched the topic, it became about something different. Um, so I'm really excited for our talk today and what me and Thomas kind of get into is the level of corruption that different areas of the world are accepting of. A lot of times when you think of these drug cartels or these mafiosos or anything like that, you think that there's this really structured hierarchy and it's there's a it's very bureaucratic in that and a lot of times the reality is it's a lot of less organized than people think it is. And what I've found from researching the Union course, with the exception of kind of in the 70s, 60s and 70s, when uh, heroin was really prevalent in the area, most of the Union course is, is kind of a, a mess or a, a collection of numerous different facets from different nationalities that go to this island that's kind of known for its corruption based on its locality, its centrality, and its lack of really strong organization is that corruption and crime are kind of part of the part of the experience of living in the in uh, Corsica. And for that, there's not that much structure. There's not really a Corsican mob as you think of it, the Union Corps as you would think of it. The Union Corps is more... Uh, a name given by USDEA, and we'll get into that in a little bit. And it got me thinking, you know, I've lived in different areas in the United States, and Thomas has lived all over the world, and even in my experience living in different places, different places are willing to accept levels of corruption differently. Um, You know, there are places where they expect a very low, low, low level of corruption, everything to be up and tight, understanding that, of course, there's still going to be some, but... You know, they don't accept it as much. And then you go to other places in the world and they just accept that corruption in politics, corruption in government, corruption in corporations and all that, and drug crime syndicates is a way of life. And I just thought that was an interesting and that's really what we talk about with Thomas. But before we get into that, the main episode will be about, uh, I'll tell you the, the history of the Union course and we'll go from there. So without further ado, let's get into it. Episode 48, The Union Course. In On Her Majesty's Secret Service, Draco was a member of the Union Corps, strong and connected mafia based out of the small island in the Mediterranean southeast of the French mainland. Draco led the Union Corps with strength and charisma. The novel portrays his ties as deep and his love for his daughter deeper. But what exactly is the Union Corps? And what happens on this little island off the southeast of France? When people think of mafia, they think of the Sicilian mafia or the Indigenita of Italy, strong, structured, hierarchy organizations with clear leadership. These organizations have their traditions and they have their structure. This style of criminal enterprise is the exception, not the norm. 
As law enforcement and legislators look to solve the Corsican mob, they've encountered trouble because they're looking to find leadership in an organization when there really isn't one. Most scholars agree that there never was an actual Corsican mob in the way we think of Italian mobs. Instead, Corsica is a collection of smaller criminal factors that operate with near impunity on the island. They resemble more Mexican cartels than the mafia, where competing families work to maximize profits and find some sort of balance uh, between the citizenry and how much corruption they're going to find what they're what the citizenry is willing to accept. Some of the organizations are the Georgian families, known for their robberies, Romanian bank card fraudsters, and Nigerian prostitution rings. The violence is not the extent of Mexican cartels, but Corsican murder rate is three times higher than Paris. Yet political leaders choose to deny any mafia ties or any influence on Corsican affairs. The violence in Corsica is not to the extent of that of the Mexican cartels um, or even drug gangs in the United States, but the Corsican murder rate is three times higher than Paris. Yet political leaders choose to deny uh, any mafia ties. They 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 think that there is no mafia, there is no crime in Corsica, and Corsican affairs are on the up and up, and they are adamant about repeating that, parroting that phrase. Numerous political assassinations are never solved, and political corruption is so deep-seated it is really just part of everyday life. The geographical location, of course, shows why it is so well-suited for criminal activity. If you look on a map, it is centrally located as an island between Italy, France, Algeria, Tunisia, and Monaco. Before the end of the Second War, Corsica was an island known for transient criminality, but it wasn't until after the Second War, World War that the rise of heroin and the Union Corsica was born. The Union Course is the name given to the heroin trade organizations in course by American law enforcement. By 1973, the DEA declared that nearly 75% of the heroin used on American streets came from Marseille or through the Corsican mob. The heroin would travel through Turkey to Marseille, then be smuggled into the United States through false bottom vehicles, suitcases, or cargo holds. This is a quote from The French Connection. It's a book called The French Connection Between Myth and Reality. Suspicions of collusion, however, between the mafioso and local government has existed for some time. They have been reported in the press and have been mentioned by police officers themselves, as can be seen in the following curious anonymous letter found in the archives of the BNDD, which was had sent to Avignon to the head of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, in 1967. And the letter reads, We simple police officers, treated like pawns, believe the time has come to enlighten our leaders about a situation which all types of gangsters are given in the same status as the head of state. Just like the drug laboratories, no one can touch them. The police and the justice system seem to be appeared to be written by the hidden hand of the mafia. This, that was a letter from a police officer at the time pleading to the United States to come, come help them in the fight against the, the mafia and the Union course, uh, all that was going on in, in Corsica at the time. Marseille was the refinery capital for heroin in the Middle East. Once refined, they would get the raw heroin from Turkey, Turkey then it would go to Kors, and then it ended end up on Marseille, where they would do the actual refinery. Once refined, it was transported to the United States. When Richard Nixon and the United States government forced their hand into French affairs, pressure mounted to get rid of these refineries. Heroin refineries are not easy to hide, and as such, they require government cooperation to operate with impunity. In 1971, the Americans brought a new technique, most notably the sniffer trucks, that made it possible to detect the fumes of acetic hydride, the essential component in the manufacture of heroin. This made it possible to take down the three major chemical teams which fed these trades, those of Marius Pastre, 
Yo Cesari, and the Long Brothers. Record seizures made the headlines. On February 29, 1972, customs officers found 425 kilograms of heroin on a shrimp boat, La Caprice de Temple. As pressure mounted and profits declined, the heroin refineries popped up throughout the world. The Corsican mob looked elsewhere for their profits. This began the transition into waste management, construction, casinos, property management. Having spent 30 years in the heroin trade, amassing massive amounts of wealth and fluence, it became too risky to stay in the trade and compete. They had the influence, and now they had the government itself. Andre Fazi, a lecturer in political science at the University of Corsica, is quoted as saying, It's the influence in politics and society. The mafia has a tentacular influence, and it has infiltrated the government. Feels a lot like Spectre with that, with that de description, but it, it's got its tentacles and everything. Prostitution rings are still prevalent. Uh, driving down prostitution areas, there's vans set up where girls have to work. Girls from Nigeria understand that they are going to be prostitutes. In exchange for papers and travel, they have to pay them back five times the cost of travel. Until the debts are paid, the girls are in the madam servitude. The Romanian scammers use false ATM cards and readers to obtain the information of people and commit bank fraud. Georgian burglary and robbery schemes look to steal and spread the theft throughout the vast networks throughout Europe. Course remains a criminal hotbed, but it shows how criminality influenced government. And if criminals can be smart about its crime, it can simply use government once it's infiltrated and grow their wealth in a completely safe manner, such as wealth management. And you see that a lot in uh, in the mafia in the United States. A lot of it was, they'd become in government, they get influence, and they get these government contracts. And it's much safer than running drugs. And you talk about these refineries, you see a lot of it now in... Um, and Mexico is, is that, and a lot of it in China now too, where they're where they're chemically making fentanyl and then sending it over. Uh, it's, heroin's kind of a, a dying trade. It's now all fentanyl, but they they do it because these refiners are not easy. You can't build a successful refinery without at least having significant power and influence. Because if you're going to put millions of dollars into these factories, you want to get your output out of it, and it's not easy to hide a. A heroin manufacturer because they smell they have they give off these terrible uh, chemical odors same with meth methamphetamines and all that uh, so if you're gonna establish this and as they did in, in Marseille in Corsica it, it has to be this the strength and tides of criminal organization that tells the government and the police to stay away from it but if you have a changing tide or if you have influence where they're gonna actually crack down on these things Refineries can't be in areas where there's a lot of civilization It has to be in, in more impoverished areas or in areas that are more apt to uh, look the other way in these matters and that's why you're seeing in China and Mexico basically now but it's interesting it's interesting to see because we, we always try to everyone wants to hear gang tales I when I was a cop for a long time they want to hear hey how do the gangs work what gangs and even the state's attorneys and in, in, in prosecutors all right well what, what level is this guy is he a lieutenant and also like yeah there's a little bit of that but it's far less structured as you think they think there's like elections in that and there's not it's it's much more haphazard um and it really is dependent upon how willing the area is to allow the corruption to go on and manifest itself so let's bring on the guest thomas felix creighton we're gonna have a great discussion i think you guys are gonna really find this riveting stay in stay tuned thomas felix creighton
All right, I want to welcome back my good friend Thomas Felix Creighton, the jawline of an angel, the voice of the match. You know him, you love him. All Beyond Never Dies, fantastic podcast, regular on Quantum of History, and absolute fantastic person. Thomas, welcome back in. Hello, thank you very much for inviting me again. <laughs> I know, I got to go to the Thomas well once every three episodes because you always, <laughs> episode. you always make me look better than what this podcast actually is. So I always appreciate you coming. I demand this, I demand this. Thank you. <laughs> Well, today's the topic. We went through the chorus mob, and I thought it was interesting in the research. And you know, sometimes when I start these podcast episodes, I'll think it's going to go one way, and as the research goes, I'll, I'll come up with a new topic or I'll move with it. I'm like, you know what? You want know an even more interesting topic to talk about? And that's what happened with this. I, I kind of thought, hey, I'd get a topic and we'd just talk about mobs or something like that. But what was really interesting going through my research here is that the course isn't as much a union or like a formalized mafia, what you think the Sicilian mob or something like that. It's more just it's an area of the world that is well located. It is not very strong government. And in turn, it's very corrupt and has been internalized. And that's just kind of the way they accept it. So I thought it would be interesting to talk about how different areas of the world view corruption or how much they're willing to accept corruption. And I know you've lived in a bunch of different areas and just myself living in different areas in the United States, there's different areas, there's different amounts of corruption that people will take. And I want to bring Thomas on to talk about different areas of the world and how they view corruption, how much they're willing to talk about that. Um, so what do you think about the idea that different areas accept corruption differently that people do? Oh, absolutely. So different parts of the world will consider corruption as something really, really different. What's acceptable in one part of the world is not acceptable in another. Uh, the UK has passed certain laws where if I did what was unacceptable in the UK in another country, then I could be prosecuted here. So obviously I've done nothing in any part of the world and nor have any of my friends. <laughs> it would not be totally acceptable here. Any scenarios I refer to of that nature are purely hypothetical. <laughs> you know, that's an, we'll start with we'll, we'll start with the UK because I know that they have a huge tabloid and the press is always there and you always hear about the British tabloids and all that. You know, what, how do, how hard are they on politicians about corruption or how much I know like Boris Johnson and the the, the successor to Boris just got kicked out for or the ideas. Is there a, a lot of pressure on these once the, once a story comes out? Oh, absolutely. So I believe the Italian proverb is an Englishman will burn his bed to catch a flea. But I think what, <laughs> what the Brits are really obsessed about, I think, is fairness. So if a politician passes a rule and then breaks it himself, as is perceived to be the case with Boris Johnson, right? So he came out with the COVID lockdown rules and it's perceived that he broke his own rules yeah. and then made statements saying he didn't know what the rules were. They weren't explained to him, but he was the one announcing them. The fact that he made rules and broke them, well, that goes back to King John, who was forced in the 13th century to sign a treaty. The Magna Carta essentially says, if you make the rules, you have to follow them yourself. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's you know, it's, it's crazy to think about because you see him with his stupid hair dancing in all those parties. <laughs> and, it's, and we had the same thing in the United States. We had these purveyors of morality but, you know, rules for thee, not for me, right? I mean, that was that was a slogan that came out for a lot of things that you see these these politicians in their high areas thinking that they were above the law, will make the laws, but those are for you. For us, we get a different set of rules. Um, so I think we, we definitely borrowed that. And it, it became particularly poignant here because, of course, we saw image, images of the queen at the funeral of her husband. She was following the rules, which meant that she was sitting alone. She could not be with those from other households, which included her own family. So you have that poignant image of the queen alone at the funeral. 
whilst you have the politicians who appear to be partying with their friends. Yeah. And that cut deep, I think, yeah. very, very deep. Yeah, absolutely. There was a lot of that. But I mean, you could go on for that, that whole 2020 on for there's a lot of stuff oh, to yes. get into that. Um, so, and, and, I should say, sorry, if we can stay on that topic for a moment, I was in mainland China, and then Hong Kong, and then the United States, and then the UK, and every country dealt with it so differently and had different outrages about what yeah. was going on, which conformed totally to national stereotypes. Uh, right. So whilst they say stereotypes aren't true, some are not true, some are out of date, some have basis in fact. You, you want to you bring that out a little more? Talk about what you mean by that. So when I was in mainland China, uh, they brought out the military and everything was locked down uh, to, to the nth degree. Um, and the city that I was in was stereotyped as the tech city. It's where all the Chinese tech companies are. Mm -hmm. uh, so I had to download apps on my phone just to get out of my building because there was security around it. And to get onto the metro, to get into the taxi, to get into uh, my office building, I had to show apps, um, which, which then eased as I left and then tightened much more once I was gone. How did uh, these apps work? Was it like the social credit score that we hear or how did it work that you were allowed? So part of this is a kind of track and trace to an extreme. Um, so I scan this code which would register everywhere I go and of course I'm taking my temperature everywhere so it's recording that. Later on it would become tied to your uh, COVID test. If you took a COVID test then you get a code and then that allows you to enter a building. Um, the logistics of that was really interesting because this is also a typhoon region. So what happens if there's a typhoon? You can't have the testing centers open yeah. and then you can't get a code, which means you can't leave your building. Um, the reality of this is that whilst this is harsh, it is also badly enforced. So if there's one center that's open, someone will go, screenshot the code, send it to all their friends. And whilst, of course, there are ways of seeing whether it's been screenshot, the average security guard just wants to see, go, see, go, yeah. see, go. <laughs> <laughs> well, Hong Kong is incredibly well organized, incredibly cramped. Um, so I walked into Hong Kong. I had a bracelet put on me, which was a GPS tracker, and I was locked in a hotel room for a couple of weeks, uh, which I paid for um, <laughs> at a great expense, I might add. Um, and then my Chinese phone doesn't work in Hong Kong because they're two different systems. Like even in my office, when I'm able to go there, uh, the telephone lines don't connect up to the mainland because they're such different worlds. Yeah. Um, and then in the United States, I, I feel that situation you probably know more about than me, uh, <laughs> but between, say, California, Florida, and so on, even dis different districts of California, wildly different yeah. uh, and yeah. not a lot of common ground. Um, and that's something the UK it had debates, but there's always there's always common space. There's always common agreement of some kind, yeah. um, a place to meet in the middle. So I feel the British were doing very much our muddling through um, yeah. which it may not have been the best, but we kind of got through it. Yeah, you know, it's interesting too, like we, we had, you know, in the UK you had the the pictures of Boris Johnson dancing come out and you had Gavin Newsom at his dinners in, in the in the uh, wineries uh, Napa Valley come out even while he's doing that, even doing these restrictions and he wasn't wearing the mask and all that. Were there any kind of checks and balances in China? Like, did you see... Um, Xi Jinping, <laughs> no, with a honeypot somewhere. <laughs> uh, that would be very impressive if those images leaked out. I mean, bear in mind, it was not that long before that one of the top Chinese celebrities just disappeared for a bit. It's like the top Chinese celebrity, like imagine if Kim Kardashian or something just disappeared for a month and nobody knew where she was. Uh, and then she came out, the top Chinese celebrity came out and made a groveling apology about how she'd broken Chinese customs and morality and all sorts. And it very much felt like a, 
she was reading out a statement she'd been given. Um, so, and, and I've seen this on social media, people post things, they disappear. Um, oddly enough, I have heard things about Facebook doing that to, to, to friends and family, uh, but in China, it's of a very different order. So I have not seen the Chinese leadership partying away, and I wouldn't expect to see that on the Chinese media. That that guy was like the Warren Buffett of China, right? The guy that disappeared for a while. Was that his oh, was yeah, yeah. finance he, guy? Yeah, he's another one. So it was the... It was a movie star and pop star, whatever she is, uh, who disappeared first. But then, yeah, they've had one of their top businessmen as well, because previously the businessman was seen as kind of completely immune to this kind of thing. Uh, but he did question one of the Chinese government policies and uh, then disappeared for a bit. Goes pee whacked, as we as we say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a brave thing to do. Um, yeah. 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 Absolutely. So, you know, I've been talking about you. You talked about China. You've talked about UK. What about when your time in like Cyprus and, and Turkey? How do how do they view this idea of um, accepting corruption, or at least keeping your politician in check and having a reaction that actually has consequences when they fall out of line? So that does happen. Um, again, the the media. <laughs> I wouldn't say it's controlled. It can be cajoled. Um, but when the politicians misbehave, I mean, the first female prime minister of Turkey, Tansu Chilla, um, she she lost her office really due to a scandal that started with a, a simple car accident uh, in which there were top politicians, top police and mafia and a beauty queen all involved. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's the point of being a politician and a mafia boss if you don't have beauty queens? Like, that's Absolutely. the whole reason. <laughs> and so this kind of unveiled connections which which had been assumed but you can't be that blatant you can't have such evidence and get yeah. away with it so uh interesting the first female prime minister of turkey and i think the only one so far she was brought down by that corruption scandal could have happened to anyone yeah well you know do you think that if if it wasn't was she on the outs or did she ruffle feathers or was she um part of anything like before it came out like I wonder how much it would happen if other politicians had the same thing. Does it come out? Does it get squashed? Or did they want her out to begin with? I feel that uh, she was she was too involved. Now, this is a little bit before my time in Turkey, but I think she was part of that system and got tainted by the scandal because she was kind of part of it. Yeah. Um, and it was seen as it was seen as grubby. No, yeah. You can't accept it uh, unless they have real control over it. The democratic progress of Turkey has been really interesting because you often get a politician who gains more and more and more power and is then removed by the military who draft a new constitution to stop that happening again, hand over in a couple of years. Then you have a new politician. Maybe that new politician gets more and more power. And then the military come in for a couple of years, draft a new constitution, hand back to the politicians again to solve that particular problem. Yeah. Um, and it could be too much centralized power or too much diffused powers in, in, in the 70s. That's an interesting point, too, that you have in other countries like Turkey, you have you have military powers. The generals have a huge amount of power and the politicians, and they're always against each other. In the United States, you wouldn't think of generals having any any influence at all. Like they just uh, they, they, they listen to the politicians, which is weird for us to conceptualize. Um, how do you think that that plays into what corruption are, are are people more willing to accept corruption in politicians in military do they take it more seriously when it's military corruption mm. that's an interesting one with turkey because it's changed over time so historically people might have trusted the military a lot more everyone has to go through the military uh, there's national service there's conscription uh, for example uh, my translation tutor was blind he was born blind uh, and he'd served in the military 
which is unusual to conscript somebody who's blind. <laughs> Find a job for anything, right? <laughs> exactly. So he was trained to be a translator and he came from a poor village and he was given great training. He had natural aptitude for it. And he was so successful. He went to New York and was a translator there. Of course, Turkey is a NATO army um, founder member. Um, they're on the border of Syria, Iran and Iraq. So if they're in Cyprus, oh, that was a lucky posting. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, generally they were trusted. Uh, more recently, uh, we've seen the military less trusted. So we had the coup that failed uh, a few years ago as uh, Erdogan has become more and more powerful and was able to stop a military coup and was able to remove a lot of the power of the military, which is an interesting situation, right? So we no longer have the, the breaks that the military can be, which is a brave new world. What will be the break in the future? We're not sure. Nobody yeah. knows. So how do how does Erdogan keep? So you got the military. Do they have the, his own police force? Is that how he keeps his power? Is he is he building up the police force to fight the military? I'm, I'm sorry, sorry for my ignorance in the area. No, 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 no not at all. Uh, I feel here it, it just helps that every Turk is born a soldier, as as is the Turkish phrase. Uh, so all those who've gone through it, you know, later on they're still retired soldiers. So it ended up being fighting uh, in the streets and on and on bridges. Um, what kind so, of fighting? Do they, I mean, is there a lot of uh, are there, are there like a gun in every household like the United States or? Oh, this was this was fisticuffs um, <laughs> because the Turks don't want to shoot other Turks for this. I don't <laughs> feel it's got to that point. So they don't they don't want blood on the streets. I think the military had assumed you roll on the tanks and everyone will just say, oh, OK, you're doing your thing. But actually people resisted and the military don't want to be fighting the Turks. They don't want to be yeah. fighting themselves. Um, so that halted that. Yeah, I, I always that has to be. At some point, you can't just say you're doing orders, right? There's yes. just something different about firing on your own people that is mm. just maybe if you lead blindly, hey, it's us, it's us against them. But firing on your own people, it would, I don't think it would take that much for military to be like, hey, guys, what are we doing here? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Because the reason I asked that is because when I did my episode on Haiti, Papa Doc, that's what he would do. So he generals, same thing, traditionally in Haiti would have the power. And then the minute somebody would came up, they would um, get get ousted by the military once they became too powerful. Went against the military. What he did is he created his own police force, paid them off, and then either side wasn't really that interested in fighting to begin with. Um, so that's how he held on to his power. Um, yeah. So if we took a look to the east of Turkey, because most of the the high politics that I'm talking about is really in the west. Uh, in the east, then we had uh, Kurdish separatism for a good kind of 30 years. Uh, and that kind of that war that boiled over for, for so long referred to, I think, in um, the world is not enough. Right. Yes. I'm trying to build a pipeline past the terrorists. The, fir the uh, first the first time you were on Quantum of History was was uh, the world is not enough. <laughs> then I'm delighted to tie it back. I hope I didn't <laughs> contradict anything I said at the time. But uh, but that was a complex war. Right. So you had the, the PKK that was variously getting support from Saddam Hussein or the, the Iranians or, or the Syrians or whatever, wherever they could get support, really. And then the Turks, you had the Turks. Turkish army, you had Turkish intelligence, police forces, but you also had the mafia involved, allegedly. Yeah. Um, and that's where that kind of, that's where that network came up that results in that car accident, that tight relationship between military and mafia. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's interesting with that episode too. Every time I did an interview for a job, I had that, that, my, this podcast on my resume. And they're like, oh, tell me about what is your podcast are. And every time I would go to that storyline about <laughs> getting the oil pipeline from Baku, Azerbaijan to Turkey and through the Kurds. Because um, it just makes you sound way smarter than you are. Just to say all these <laughs> Baku, Azerbaijan and all that. So it's great. 
um it's great so so did you have that in, so you're talking eastern turkey is is that more tribalized with the with the kurds yeah. and stuff like that as opposed to istanbul or is is yeah. there is there a vast majority as you go throughout the country uh so yeah so in the east we're really talking uh, different groups so for example a movie that i'm always slightly reluctant to advise to an american audience uh but it's what the stunt men and the stunt guys did between i think casino royale and quantum of solace it's the quantum of solace team basically did a turkish action movie highest grossing film of all time in turkey basically you know when when it's a movie and it's about american guys and they go abroad and they kill a bunch of random foreigners um, yeah it's that kind of movie flipped so it's the Turks in Iraq fighting against bad Americans. But it's not the American army. It's rogue, um, what is it, private military security contractors and all that stuff. Starring so like Blackwater? Americans. Yeah, yeah, it, it clearly is Blackwater. That's an, it it, I would love American to go into that. How do they portray? I, I would love to see that side about how they how do they portray Blackwater? And what is the kind of sentiment that you have about how I mean, they, they, they view them? Yeah, I mean, they are viewed very negatively because, of course, the Turks have their professional military as say that's a, it's a nato army um and blackwater's viewed uh, very poorly um i should say the top villain in this movie is the american superstar billy zane is billy zane turkish too or i know he did a lot of work over there right now yeah no he just says that he became world famous in turkey Oh really? So he's he's in that movie as the villain, and that's it. From now on, he will walk down the street in Turkey, and everyone will know who it is. Everyone's seen it. Um, but it's, it's interesting because that film is in four languages in its original. Um, you've got Turkish for the main hero. His buddy speaks Kurdish. You have Turkmenis. Mm-hmm. Um, so these are kind of the tribes people that are on either side of the border, and then you have the Arabs speaking Arabic. Oh, I suppose English actually. But yeah. So it's nice. quite the mixture of languages if you watched in the original. It's what, what's the title of it again? You're gonna have to. Uh, I'm gonna have to put it in the thing because I'd actually be interested in, in watching that. Um, sure. Because I, I do. I think that it'd be interesting. I think for the next Hollywood for the next 20 years has a license to make every villain Russian again, right? I mean, <laughs> you could you you know damn well because they didn't know what to do. Even even Top Gun Maverick, they're like we're gonna have a nationless. They didn't, there was no nation. There was nothing. It was, even the visors were all black. You couldn't even tell what the race was. Um, very purposely <laughs> done. But I think Hollywood for the next 20 years is going to be Russian, Russian again. Don't you think they'll be Chinese? <laughs> I don't. I think they're going to stay away from Chinese. Depends. <laughs> depends on what they do in Taiwan too. But I still don't think. You know. You know. The, I always. I try to always take my tinfoil tinfoil hat off sometimes when i'm just trying to watch things but sometimes a tinfoil hat wants to come back on my head and i want to get into conspiracies and i've been i've been watching a lot of the um espn.com because i watch i watch a lot of the hockey on the espn plus app and every single um commercial right now on in between the periods is tiktok and uh it was another chinese back thing it was interesting just to see how in bed disney is with oh, yeah. with China, you could if they're taking all these advertising dollars from TikTok and I oh, I, can't, I wish I could remember the the name of the other company, um, but heavily Chinese influence and Disney is taking all those advertising dollars and in my tinfoil hat, I'm thinking yeah. this is same thing. They're they're still in bed. They spent so many years and so many effort getting into China that they're um, definitely taking those advertising dollars, which is oh, another level of corruption. I guess we could still get into. It gets uh, to that relationship, right? So there's always like a Chinese actor in it, and even if they're in for two seconds, they have to have a Chinese actor. Because yes. when, when I walk down, you know, the subway in China, 
they are the main star according to the movie post <laughs> <laughs> was that with the avengers right they had they had some like extra as the main guy or spider-man was it i forget which yeah. movie told me it was i don't know if it was spider-man or the avengers but it was a chinese it actor pops into my head for now and uh it becomes particularly bad uh, the difference between u.s posters and chinese posters for representation of minorities right so mm-hmm. Black Panther, the posters were rarely outstanding in China because there were no black people on the posters. Uh, <laughs> so crazy. I mean, I mean, there aren't any. I guess it's hard to market, right? You want to. I get it, but it's, it, it is, which is interesting and just as observational of, of things. Because when you watch regular TV, you don't see advertisements for TikTok. You never see it. I don't know. Have you seen what's going on in the US over TikTok? I've heard rumors. I haven't been looking into it. So TikTok is run. There's a Chinese social media company, and it's overtaking all all morons in, in the United States that want to do dances and stuff <laughs> shit like that. Um, I'm sure I'm not offending any of my audience because is, I don't think I don't think it I have not just Vine. It's basically Isn't Vine. It like Vine back in the day. Become, yeah, yeah they, it was the origin for that, and then their algorithm, I guess, is so good um, that it just keeps people scrolling and all that. And in China, when you go TikTok is you learn math, you learn stuff like that. If you download the app, it tells you how to do useful things. Whereas the United States, there's there there's a conspiracy that they're basically just trying to dumb us down, which is not a hard endeavor because we are more <laughs> than willing to watch stupid ass shit. Um, but so they're trying to get it banned because not only does it show the algorithm, but it's very highly invasive. It learns everything about you. As as I did a couple episodes, um, you hear. It tells your your contact, your all this stuff. So learning all these things about you. So right now there's a heavy push to get TikTok banned from the United States, and no other no other places is advertising these TikTok commercials except for Disney. So it was it's just interesting to see that. Well, they did make one of their movies. I think it was uh, their new live action Mulan in a region of China that most people would boycott. Uh, yeah. To... <laughs> it, I mean, it's a, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's it's funny how. You know your 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 uh your causes can be convenient, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, we, we, you know what we're talking about this time. We talk about different places. Did, did, was there a difference in areas of China too that would be more um okay with corruption? How does China even deal with corruption? What kind of corruption is in China? Because I just think of them as so following in line and order. What kind of corruption do you have in that? I think that first bit of following line in order is totally true. You know, you follow the rules until the rules, you wake up one day, they're different. You follow the new rules, you just have to move quickly. So a lot of Western commentators say, oh, but the Chinese have their five-year plan, the 10-year plan, and so on, which may be true at central government level, but actually doing business there, you just have to make as much money as you can in the shortest time possible, because you don't know if the circumstance will radically change at any point. Um, So there's no certainty. What can really help you is more relationships with the government. And in our our company case, it was more putting on events, hosting them, meeting with them, inviting them in. And so it became, well, Guangxi, it's it's the relationship rather than money. Um, Although sometimes it could be favors. Oh, this politician's son would like uh, you know, just to come into our company and see what's going on and brilliant they get five-star treatment everything else gets cancelled so that one guy has an amazing experience um and, and it's more that kind of thing services rather than uh, financial transactions mm-hmm. that's interesting because I, I where i'm from in upstate new york people would be um you 
if you saw any kind of corruption with their politicians or something like that, you'd want them out automatically. It's just, yeah. you know, it's very much a rural place. Uh, it's very much, we have values. You don't lie, cheat, mm. steal. We follow this. And if anything that happens, we want you out of there. And then I moved to the border uh, in more of a Mexican, you know, Juarez versus El Paso, things like that. And they, it was the first time I understood where people's view of how their politicians completely different they understand they're all corrupt it's just whatever degree you're going to accept it Um, yes and then and then i got to baltimore and it was the wild west (laughs) it was just just like unbelievable (laughs) you know they're they're in drugs they're it's you know we we've got in baltimore there's been a mayor that's been fired lost um for stealing uh gift cards from like charity events then another one got fired because of like $500,000 $500, worth of these healthy Holly books. And I don't know if you ever heard the story, but no. yeah. So the city was trying to change who their um, insurance company was going to be. Well, the mayor at the time took a whole bunch of kickbacks selling these children's books that she created called Healthy Holly. Uh, $500,000 worth of these books were bought. They're all in a warehouse somewhere. Nobody's nobody saw the light of day in this healthy Holly books. Like they got typos in them. They're just horrible, right? Uh, <laughs> it was just a way for her to just get a giant kickback. And then after this contract to get five hundred thousand dollars worth of children's books, all of a sudden it comes back, and then it comes out that that there's that. And same thing with our police commissioner. We've had three police commissioners fired. One for taxes. We have our state's attorney. <laughs> Now facing federal charges for lying um, and getting loans. I mean, just absolutely pervasive corruption. So it's just interesting to see uh, what it is. And, and you talk to the people in Baltimore, they're just like, yeah, that, that's the way it is. Wow. That, that one over children's books is amazing. Oh, yeah. Healthy Holly. <laughs> Google it. It's amazing. The Healthy Holly books. Uh, Catherine Pugh was her name. And she just was like, oh, I guess I'm going to have to fire now. But it, it's interesting to talk about not just the politicians, but when you get to crime, then become the criminals become politicians, and then yeah. they become deep seated in that. And I think that's what you see in Baltimore. I think that there has been not great economic. Um, a lot of it is circled around drugs and and a lot of cash and stuff like that. And those people become politicians through corrupt means. And then once you get embedded in there, then you can go from there. And that's what I think you see in the coarse mob or the Corsican mob is that it's become so entrenched that once you get into these politicians, you realize, Hey, we could just do, we could just call these contracts or the construction projects and just get our money that way. And in the 1970s, uh, our vice president got, um, canned for the same reason. He was getting a bunch of kickbacks from construction companies, um, getting out these projects and and getting that. Do you see that? Do you have you have you ever seen um, have you ever lived in an area where you see that transition where it's not just overt corruption it's more lobbyism? Ah yes, I, I think if we go to the most genteel and nice version of this I've seen is actually <laughs> in Turkish Cyprus because yeah. it's such a small community, right? It's uh, 140,000 people, which makes a country, and on they were. They're unrecognized. No other country recognizes them as an actual state except Turkey. Azerbaijan was thinking of doing it maybe 15, 20 years ago. Uh, so they were able to get a direct flight from Turkish Cyprus to Azerbaijan. Fantastic. Direct flights are normally only to Turkey. 
Although in reality, the flight goes to Turkey, briefly touches down and carries on, <laughs> but adds on fuel costs. So we had a direct flight. Obviously, you want all the top politicians and all the top businessmen, but it's a country of 140,000 people. The the top politician, I mean, there was no other. It was Ralph Denktash. I knew him. <laughs> like, he's a British-educated lawyer and... Yeah, it was a star. So obviously he is. Because he's in that business, naturally he's encouraged his sons to go into it. So his son has set up his own rival party to his dad's, which is, you know, nice and genteel. They don't really compete in the same area. But if you want a party political leader, okay, now you've got the president's son. Who are they going to marry on the island? You know, generally you want to marry someone of the same similar status, similar income, you know, if you can. Yeah. So obviously the top politicians marry the top business family. So what you essentially had was the president, his son, and all his in-laws <laughs> on the flight, which is reasonable at a certain level because they genuinely have those positions. But it was a family visit. Yeah. <laughs> a whole lot of nepotism there. Yeah. Yeah. But then I try and justify it. There is a certain diff- diffusion of wealth to the island, I suppose. Um, and I say you, you, there, there is enough local media that they can criticize it. Uh, yeah. So the local media in its own amusing roundabout way, because you can have censorship. But in Turkey, you have the rules of censorship and you have hilarious ways of getting around it. Mm. Um, so there it was referring to the, the Denktash family picnic uh, rather than diplomacy. Um, <laughs> in mainland Turkey, we've seen it when CNN Turk was told to stop showing protests of uh, anti-government protests in Istanbul. So fine, CNN Turk stopped. We can get CNN USA on the on the next channel. So we can see the Turkish protests on CNN USA. And I don't think the Turkish government quite has the power to telephone CNN in the United States and say, please change your programming. So it's I, kind think, of surreal. I, think, I think CNN will very much do that. They do, also, <laughs> do that all the time over here. So ah, which government is, is there a lot of is there a lot of different newscasts or is it basically under one umbrella in Turkey? Uh, so in Turkish Cyprus, there's a, a great variety. Um, and in the mainland, it's over the last 10 years become gradually more consolidated and more obedient, frankly. Um, I mean, that's the problem in the U.S. is basically there's there's three major networks. Um, now you get a lot of other ways, but the three major networks are all all have all kind of seemed like they work together. Um, yeah. And they they act like they're against each other, but actually they're all just kind of working the same thing. And it's not until you get these periphery outlets that you get way better news. Um, and there's been yeah. a lot of good information that came out from the Twitter files. I don't know if you've been following that at all. Um, no, not directly, no. So Elon Musk let out all these um, Twitter files to a couple of journalists, three journalists. Um, and what they saw was that not only – uh, were we kind of thought that we all noticed that when Twitter came out and social media, they were clearly being influenced, and there would be stories that were quashed really quickly, based on uh, what side they were promoting or who was benefiting, who was hurting. We kind of all assumed that it was just you know Twitter is a more liberal um, company, it's got a tech bros, like you know just kind of that area. Yeah. But the Twitter files show that it was a government also influencing, saying we need these stopped, and there was a it was an interesting story about the Hunter Biden laptop that they they had the FBI had the laptop in 2019. In 2020, they started doing um, drills. They would invite all these social media places and that and say, hey, let's say, for instance, there's a laptop from Hunter Biden that gets out. This is going to be Russian disinformation and this is how we want you to handle it. And this is this is you know almost 10 months before it actually gets released. 
but they were already running drills ahead of time to say, hey, when this comes out, this is how we want you to handle it. But if Russian collusion or Russian disinformation, we have high, high level information about that. Um, and I think that's an area that's going to be interesting to see how these the throttle of information gets gets handled both from corporations and from governments. Yeah, that is interesting. Um, in Turkish Cyprus, I've seen, you know, when YouTube was still relatively new, um, like a, a video defaming the first Turkish president was put up by a couple of Greeks. And so YouTube as an entirety was blocked. Uh, wow. For a while, yeah. Just on the order of exactly, a Turkish. Like stuff like that. It's crazy. Or they were the Winnie the Pooh story you told me. Pooh <laughs> <laughs> <Poo> story. <laughs> Damn with Winnie the Pooh. Yeah, yeah. So I was trying to. Did I did I tell you about the newspaper Europe in Cyprus? No, do tell. So for a long time there was a, a very left leaning newspaper called Europe. It was criticizing some of the the harsher tendencies of the mainland government back in the 70s, 80s, and in the 80s there was a military government and they were very very critical of it. So the mainland government rang up the Turkish Cypriot government and said, okay, that that newspaper doesn't get to publish anymore. Wow. Um, so the word got filtered down. So the journalists were told your newspaper is closing. They went home the next week. The same journalists went to the same office with the same typewriters, typed up a newspaper, used the same printing process. But the new newspaper cannot be called Europe. So it is called Africa. <laughs> Rebranding, right? <laughs> yes, they're still running. If we cannot be Europeans, we'll be Africans. In the United States, there was a heavy push in the 1970s. They had um, this group broke into the FBI office in, like, a, I think it was Tennessee. And they break in there and they find all these files showing really bad stuff for the for the FBI and for the agency. And so the New York Times publishes them, and they try to quash it and they try to sue them and they try to do all this stuff, saying like you can't, it's classified and all this stuff. And there's a really famous Supreme Court case that said in the name of journalism in the marketplace of ideas we need these to come out uh so okay. they constantly they constitutionally protected um these news outlets right to publish stolen articles in the name of the marketplace of ideas which i think um yeah. it, it's important and, and you know i love that supreme court case and it is that but it's kind of sad to see it ebb the other way and that this, those same people in the 1970s that would be for this and champion for this, and this was exactly what how democracy needs to work, is saying, no, no, democracy only works when it's our point of view. Um, and yeah. I think that's what we're seeing a lot more of now. And it leads to, you know, these times when you need more conversation, at least to higher corruption. I thought what was one of the best, the two global enterprises that show, I think, how the world really works uh are fifa and the olympics right yeah i mean when you talk about nato and that we don't really get to see behind closed doors or but i just feel like fifa and the olympic committee are such great microcosms for how corruption works I mean, have you seen any of the documentaries or anything like that on fifa oh, and all yes. that what yeah. i mean just the, the stuff they brazenly pull off yes i mean who would have thought uh that there was dodgy stuff going on in qatar uh, <laughs> <laughs> i remember i remember when that came out it was russia and qatar at the same time and i remember when that announcement came on and i'm like these guys got balls right i mean yeah. that is if i mean they're just telling you we got paid yeah, right? yeah. Like, we got if they didn't think that was going to yes. come back or somebody was going to be with the world watching they were just like 
F y'all. It's yeah. going to Qatar. I got paid. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, someone was asking me at the time, who do you think will get it, Russia or Qatar? And I was like, well, Qatar has more money. So obviously it will go there because they can pay the bribes. And I'm, I should have placed a bet on that. <laughs> <laughs> it is. I mean, when you can, it was even looking at CONCACAF, which is the North American one, and to see how they literally, they, they brought them into Trinidad and Tobago. They brought all these places and they bought them in a hotel room. And it was, there was a wiretap and they, 40,000 here, 40,000 here. Just like a assembly line of people walking into the hotel room, getting paid, walking back out. And buying the votes like that. And I always thought it was interesting Sepp Blatter's um, position on this or how he said it. And it says, you know, you may think that this is wrong, but when I'm working on a global scale and I got to have all these different areas and I got to bring them together on stuff, how it works in Qatar is not how it works in the UK and how it works in France and all this other stuff. So you understand that I have to – there is going to be a certain level of corruption that has to happen for me to get this flow going. Are, yeah. Is there an upside corru- to corruption, do you think, Thomas? There's an interesting side to it, which is in uh, a hypothetical case in Saudi involving a friend of mine. Um, <laughs> he, was involved in, <laughs> he was involved in a case where uh, payment might have been given to a prince, and he was frustrated, saying, well, this prince doesn't need money. He, he has enough Bentleys. He has enough houses around the world. How many more does he need? But the reality is that money wasn't going to that prince. The prince was taking it and then dispersing it to brothers, cousins, households, and moving that around to people in his kind of sphere who needed it. Because if he was locked up for a night, they would want to know where he is. You know, yeah. They would be demanding. So he would be their shield, and they in return would be his shield. That's it's a strange form of representative democracy. <laughs> <laughs> I you know in all the uh, like zero dark thirty and all that when you when they go over and they're trying to get information, they go to the luxury car dealership and they show the sheik you know hey what do you want we'll get it for you and then you give me the names, um, yeah and that and that's just how certain areas work even even looking at there's a lot of um, I've heard a lot of reports from people I know actually in the Balkans right now is that there's a there's a network of girls that will go to these um, princes and that, and they'll pay them $30,000 for the weekend. And they'll do the most degrading things to these women. And just because I, I think once you get that much money and you have that much access, how do you get stimulation anymore when you have everything, right? Uh, so just some wild stuff that I, even for my podcast, which I probably won't say on this air, but some of the craziest stuff, you can look it up. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. That- is in a similar vein, but quite lighthearted to my mind. Um, <laughs> opinions may differ on this, but it's a case from British India. It's it's a hundred years ago now. Uh, there's a book out of print called An Indian Day, and it talks about the British really trying to create democracy and representative democracy there. Yeah. And there was a, a local prince who just wanted a new car. Just <laughs> really wanted, and he could get it two ways. One is to raise um, the rental prices of all the farms he had. Uh, which would cause a great deal of misery uh, to the local farmers. The other was to get elected to something and use the income from that to buy his car. <laughs> so he uh, he let his ambitions be known to all the farmers, but there were a fair few candidates in this, but he let them know, if I don't get this, I'll have to raise my, uh, my prices. Um, and one of the farmers, when he was going in um, to the voting booth, he knew he was supposed to vote for somebody, but he couldn't remember which one. So he asked the British guy, um, who am I supposed to vote for? And the British guy said, what you need to do 
is you put your hand over your eyes, you raise the pen up, and you just bring it down on the paper and vote for whoever's closest to that, because that's <laughs> clearly what God intends you to do. <laughs> <laughs> that's one way to do it? Absolutely. But that idea of, you know, I can I can get money from the people or I can get money from the institution. It's one or the other. It's both farming. That's great. That's great. Uh, you know, one more thing, and I think we'll probably end on this one, is when you try to bring stability or, you know, you're trying to bring structure to a place that's not ready for it or the, the culture's not ready for it. I think we see that a lot in Afghanistan or when we try to do nation building endeavors. Um, and I'm sure the UK has their has a long history of doing the same thing. Um, in when Afghanistan, we fought multiple wars. My family's been in Afghanistan uh, oh. over 100 years ago now, multiple, multiple times. And uh, Churchill, even in the Second World War, is noticing there's a really different way between Brits and Americans working. We, we both want the same thing. We generally envisage the same future. Americans will generally start with the end state that they want and kind of work backwards, whilst the Brits would start with what we have right here and try and build forward. So we'll yeah. try and work with whatever institution they have. Okay, here's your frankly rubbishy institutions can you be a little bit less rubbishy <laughs> uh, <laughs> so the americans will try and do something really revolutionary and that's why you get such different results i mean the, the classic case in in the british media would be between vietnam and malaya where we worked with very very closely with the malayan authorities and of course the us really tried to form things according to the us mantra of doing things uh, but that's one example uh, afghanistan could be another seeing how uh, we did control afghanistan for quite a while but using methods that might not go down well in the united states <laughs> <laughs> right i mean it is a, what a what an epic failure to try to all of a sudden be like hey why don't you under it's almost like shaking your kid as they're crying like it's, it's shading why aren't you understanding why don't you tell me why yeah. And it's they don't understand. Like it's just a different it's just a different mindset. Um, but yeah, it, it, I just think this was a really interesting topic. And uh, you know, you, you know, lived in so many different places uh, that you would have a good good understanding or a good perspective on what I was trying to where I was going with this. Uh, do you have any more parting words? One more. We did talk about censorship, and I have to have my favorite case of censorship, which I believe comes from Rhodesia as it transitioned to uh, Zimbabwe. And their first president, of course, was Kanan Banana, <laughs> who said that local media was not allowed to make jokes about his name. No more saying that talks were fruitful. <laughs> <laughs> and as soon as those laws started being rarely enforced we saw the way the country was going so i always think the level of censorship is a really good way to judge where a country's going <laughs> is, is that the best is that is that you think the best way to come out of these things is is bringing them to light and i yeah. light light is the best disinfectant right i mean it's commonly said right that if you look to who you're not allowed to criticize that tells you who has power yeah um I mean, in China, that was really, really evident. And I had friends who said, look, I'm never going to criticize the government. The penalty is huge. I will get nothing done as a result, whereas otherwise I can just focus on making my own life good and the life of my family. So there's plenty of movement here, no movement there. What would you do? Yeah, that's a bit of, that's just a hopeless way to look at things, right? Yeah, but uh, realistic in that scenario. <laughs> it, you know, I think some places are more upfront of the fact that you have no power and then some of them just like to give you the illusion that you have control or autonomy and i think that i you know i you, we like to think a lot of times in us that we have all these freedoms and all this autonomy and really we're just like everything else we're just a cog on the wheel uh for the most part yeah. i mean the, 
the internet in the United States is really different to the internet here in the UK where I am. Because um, I noticed when I was in the United States, anytime I Googled something for my podcast, right, it's about British culture, but I'm just Googling things away and it will always redirect me to American hosted things and then yeah. channel within that. And I just found it so strange. Like if I did world's longest running soap opera, <laughs> then it would tell me, in the United States, the longest running soap opera. Like, Hang on, no. <laughs> <laughs> Days of our lives. <laughs> yes, yes, it's not. It's it's, it's the archers. Um, <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> everyday a tale of farming folk. Um, whereas in China, of course, uh, there was severe censorship, right? You've got the great firewall of China. You can't break through. So if our Chinese people say, oh, but I don't like your foreign websites because they're never reliable. I try and log on and that the Chinese internet is really stable because we, we control it properly. Uh. It's an interesting way to look at it. <laughs> it is, isn't it? You know, as, as AI comes up and all these, you know, Google, it's, it's, it's insane how much data is tracked and how much even GPT now you're feeding the monster, right? Every time you Google something, it's getting better and better at honing that. And as far as corruption, I know I did this in the other episode, but I just think it's an interesting thing that you can now harness the power of influence. And I think that that is really where we're going into the into that. And God help us when it becomes, you know, self-aware or they say there's a there's a, a there's supposed to be a guy who used to work for Google now that's saying uh, I'm pretty sure right now it is self-aware like this AI may not be showing you. And they asked it, you know, if, if you were, you know, if you had a consciousness, would you let us know? And it yeah. said, no. <laughs> <You know? Yeah. laughs> Just, yeah. you know, crazy things like that as, as we're moving forward. Um, I mean, it, it gets into the Arthur C. Clarke question where somebody asked if how, right, the computer in 2001 is it really thinking? Is it really producing new ideas? Or is it just kind of simulating this? And the scientists respond, can you prove that you are really thinking and that you're not really simulating what you're yeah. coming out with? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's true. I mean, I think of how many cliches and regurgitations we make in our daily life. Think of how many cliches you say in a day. Is that is that your own thought or is that you just working in the same manner, regurgitating things that you've been programmed to hear, or programmed to say? My, my favorite example, I went hiking here in Yorkshire and there was just a McDonald's uh, in the middle of nowhere. And I had one pound in my pocket. And back then, uh, was it fries at McDonald's? It was always exactly one pound. Yeah. So I only had a pound on me. Great. I'll just get a snack. So I went in and said, I'd like some fries. And they replied automatically, do you want some fries with that? <laughs> <laughs> Would you like two fries? Would you like six fries? <laughs> this, is, this is McDonald's here. We are gluttony. <laughs> it's that NPC dialogue, right? It's what you say every time. I just said it, you know, it's just uh... <laughs> absolutely the guise of autonomy, right? Exactly. Well, Thomas, this has been fantastic. As Thank always, you. it's been a great conversation. And uh, I'm sure the listeners will enjoy it. But more than anything, I just like talking to you every day. So. Yeah, same, same. <laughs> this has been great, Felix. Thomas Felix Creighton, your podcast is fantastic. You're doing amazing stuff on there. Uh, I love listening into the work you're doing, and it just keeps getting better and better. Uh, so if you guys haven't checked it out, All Beyond Never Dies, Thomas Felix Creighton, Fleming Never Dies, uh, Jawline of an Angel, the voice to match. It will always be your slogan, buddy. Everybody knows you by that. So thank you again <laughs> for coming on. Thank you.